We are continuing our series in Revelation, and as you can see on the screen, we are going to go into Revelation chapter 6 tonight. In Revelation chapter 6, we are reaching the beginning of the end. And as, as Dr. Strange once said, we are in the end game now. This is where we're at. We are in the end game here, and, and this is where things are starting to just accumulate all together, where the, the, the symbolism kind of gets all crazy, the vision just starts going nuts, and we start to see just how captivating eschatology truly is, how just really amazing, and also a little bit absurd of how God's plan to redeem all humanity, to redeem all creation, truly is. And what we're going to see, what we're going to see beginning in chapter 6 is kind of a small glimpse of what the rest of Revelation is going to look, at, look like. Now, if you're new to us here, and you haven't been following with us, we've been covering a Revelation, going verse by verse through it, uh, starting, I believe, back in, I think, maybe June, July, I can't exactly remember. Um, and, and so we've been going through this for a while. We recovered so far five chapters. Let me go ahead and recap real quickly where we're at, because last time we got together, I was doing more of a theology class about eschatology, and now we're coming back to, we're picking up to where we stopped the Revelation. And so just to give a quick recap, we covered, uh, in chapter one, we have the introduction, we have the vision given to the Apostle John, Chapter two and three was the letters to the seven churches. So Revelation is written to the church, written to us. Right? It's a vision given to John about the end times, but it's written down for the church. Then starting in verse four, we start to see what this vision is. And we see first the vision of the heavenly throne. And in the heavenly throne, we are reminded that God is king. God is king over all, king of kings, Lord of lords. He rules over all things. And from his throne comes power and authority. Then in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, we get introduced to a scroll. A scroll that was written down. It says it's written, if you, if you actually turn there in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, it says it's written on the front and back. This has here... The final word of God, the final judgment, the final plan, the last the last phase of everything that he's been doing throughout history. And this scroll here sealed with seven seals. And, and John saw this. He wondered who is worthy to open this scroll. He began to cry because no one was worthy until verse 4 happens. Verse 4, where the angels, you know, like gently just tap you on the shoulder and say, Hey, don't worry, look over there. And John saw the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the one who has conquered all things. He alone is worthy to open this scroll. So he opens it. And that's where we're at tonight. We're going to start to see what is written in the scroll. 
And remember, this scroll is indeed the word of God. This is what God has planned. This is what God will do. God's word is not just written down passively. God's word is active. What God has laid down, what God has written down, he will do. Now, as we come to chapter 6, we start to look at these unfolding of events, and we start to see the judgments. I laid out last week, you know, where exactly does these events fall? Some people believe the seven seals that's being talked about in, uh, in chapter 6, they are, some of them may be happening now, and then, and then the true great uh, eschatology starts, the end time starts after chapter 6. I hold a position that chapter 6 begins the great tribulation, and so I'm going to preach it that way. So I believe this is the beginning. When I say great tribulation, I mean this is the beginning of the seven years, the seven-year tribulation. And so, you know, we come to different understandings of this, and that's okay. What we, what we must face here, the reality of chapter 6 in Revelation, is that this is the first step of God's endgame. And the first step that we see here is judgment. We have to come to terms with that. That God's first step to redeeming mankind, his final plan includes judgment, includes suffering, includes destruction. I mean, this blows our mind because we can't, we don't, we don't imagine God like this is part of God's plan, and yet it's all written down here for us. So let's take a look at this. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This is God's word. Now I, this is John, now I watch when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and a, its rider had a bowl, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that the people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I look, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And this rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with, and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So we see here, we're only calling it the first four seals, right? And we see here in these first four seals, we come, we come to meet the four horsemen. Four horsemen. And we've heard of the four horsemen. They're part of, people know them as, you know, the apocalyptic horses. They're, they're kind of, they become a bit of a legend, a bit of a mythology. 
right? We, we, we kind of, we, you know, I did a quick Google search on the four horsemen. We, there's, there's like a band out there named that. Uh, we, we see what, what else was there. I think there's a TV show, there's a movie. Um, we get, is it what? It's a comic series. A comic series, yeah. I remember X Men had like the four horsemen or something like that, too. Or oh, I don't know. I, I just remember that. <laughs> um, so we hear these things. We hear about the four, four horsemen. They're used and that they're used and talked about to describe certain things. Um, but here we come to Revelations. We see where it does all come from. This is the true four horsemen of God. And one thing we can see here is there's a pattern going on here, right? That the seal gets open, and then we hear a voice. A voice from one of the four living creatures that we came to meet in chapter four. And these four living creatures were before God. They represented creation, but they bowed down. They served God, and God worked through them. God announced things through them, and they worshiped God. And through them, God speaks to these four horsemen, tells them to come. Doesn't come out. And so we see here that the four horsemen do not act without permission from God. And then we see that as each of these four horsemen come out, each of the horse has a different color. Uh, we have a white one, we have a red one, a black one, and then a pale one. Right? And now the meaning of these colors, they're, they're kind of uncertain. Like we can kind of throw around these colors in different places. But generally, we can say that the white means conquest, right? You, when you wave a white flag, you're being conquered. So there's a sense of conquest there. Red means bloodshed, right? You typically represent blood, so there's violence going on. Black, as based on the context of this passage, it most likely probably stands for scarcity, right? A dark, so there's, there's a lack of color, blackness. And then pale, this, this word in Greek for pale, um, where they weren't too sure, is, is somewhere like a, this pale, like kind of pale green. It's, it's kind of what you see like in comics and cartoons when someone gets sick and they're out there, their face turns pale green. That's, that's kind of what they're talking about. So it, it kind of stands for illness, sickness. Now with these colors, we don't, we don't want to over-symbolize them, but we, we can match to see how they kind of line up to the judgments. Being given. And we see here at each one of these horsemen were given a global judgment, right? There, there's, a, there's a form of global destruction that they are going to do. And we and there's four of them. And that's interesting because in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21, God said this, Ezekiel 14, verse 21 says, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous act of judgment, four Four disastrous act of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence. So we see that these judgments here, God has four main ways to put judgment upon this world. And we see these four are kind of laid out here with these four horsemen as well. This here is God's judgment upon the world. So let's take a look, look at this in more detail. First, we see the first writer. And I'll argue that his judgment here is to usher in a false peace around the world. A false peace around the world. The, the first of these horsemen come out, and we see here that the horse 
is white, again representing conquest. This horse holds a bowl and a crown. He's named a conqueror. And his purpose is to conquer the world. Now, this is interesting. Some people would say this is the Messiah. This is Jesus Christ, which I find to be a little bit weird because it says here that the lamb is the one who's opening the seals and then suddenly the lamb comes, Jesus comes out of the seal. Doesn't really match up to me. So, but they say that it's Jesus because this person has a bowl and a crown. He's also riding a white horse, which is what Jesus rides on in Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus comes down to earth. But I will argue that this is most likely not Jesus. It's probably more like an antichrist figure. I see this more as an antichrist figure, one who will bring a false peace around the world. And I argue this because I believe this is again the beginning of the seven year tribulation. And I say seven year because back in Daniel chapter nine, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, talking about this final seven years. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, talks about this Antichrist figure. He says that this Antichrist figure will make a strong covenant with many. Many, many, meaning that this strong Antichrist figure will make a covenant, will make a covenant of peace. Imagine that there's a tree, there's a negotiation, there's a person saying, you know what, believe in me and I will lead you to eternal rest. Right? They will make a covenant with many for one week. And so this Antichrist figure will convince everyone that he is here to save the world. But we should know better. We should know better not to follow this Antichrist figure. He's this type of person that's been predicted throughout, throughout scripture. For instance, Luke chapter 21, verse 8, Jesus talking about the end times tells his people, he says, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Do not follow them. Do not follow these people who proclaim that they're Christ. Proclaim that they're offering salvation in this world, that they will be the ones to solve the world's problems. Do not follow them. You see, these people would only lie to you and deceive you. And in a sense here, this Antichrist figure will be the greatest deceiver of all because he'll usher in this false sense of peace around the world. He will conquer the world as if he was victorious. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. I recommend you guys to read that passage. Just a just to make note of that as part of your study of eschatology here. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. Here Paul writes this for you, talking to believers, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, meaning the end time, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security. So people are saying, people are thinking everything is good with this world. Then Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. See, what will happen is that there is this sense of peace that people will think is happening. And then, all of a sudden, 
all that will end. And this leads into the second rider. The second rider ushers in a global war. And we see here that the second seal, when it opens up, another horse comes out. And this horse is red, bright red. This horse is given, this rider was given a sword. And it says here that the purpose of this rider is to remove this peace from the world and ignite war across it. The false sense of peace is shattered and war happens throughout the land. Again, if we want to talk, take this back to Daniel talking about the seven-year tribulation, it says midweek in Daniel, says that in the midpoint that the covenant will suddenly be broken and then there will be destruction and desolation happening. I think this is what most likely referring to. Perhaps maybe not exactly the midpoint, but it's heading towards that. And again, once we read this, we read about this war, this peace that's being taken away, people slaying one another. We as Christians, as a church, should not be surprised by this. We should know that this is coming. Again, going back to Luke chapter 21, going looking at verse 9, Jesus says this, it says, when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Meaning the end time, when it comes, it won't just happen. It will take some years. I believe seven years to be completed. And so when we take a look at this, perhaps maybe when this Antichrist figure comes in, what's happening here, what's the reason why war is breaking now is perhaps that there's rebellion happening, right? This is what happens when somebody comes into power, comes into authority, and somebody has a dictatorship over the world. There tends to be rebellion, right? There tends to be people who say no or to revolt against this. And you, we see this everywhere. We see this in totalitarian nations even today, right? When, when, a, when somebody comes into grips with power, the only way they can hold on to that power is actually shutting down those who may rebel against him, and there's violence, there's fighting going on, there's war. Perhaps the only way this Antichrist figure is, the only way to keep the peace is by resorting to some oppressive authority. And that all that does instigate more violence, does not. And so we see here how even the progression of these seals can be laid on top of one another. Which leads then to the next writer. We see writer number three introduces a worldwide famine. We get here a black horse. And this writer has carries with him a, a scale, a bound scale, right? It says here's a pair of scales in his hand. And then there's this voice that cries out. And a voice cries out here, says, A quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius. Now, a denarius. A denarius is about a day's wage. It's like minimum wage. It's like minimum wage that we have today. Right? You work uh, four or five hours and you earn your keep, and that's about a day's wage, right? And, and so it's about days day's wage. And then a quart of wheat, since you're a quart of wheat for denarius, a quart of wheat is about enough food for one person for one day. Right? And so it's like us buying a happy meal for the day. That's should be enough for you for one day, minimally. 
knowing the amount of calories there is. It's probably more than knowing the amount of calories are in these beans. But in any case, it's about a quarter of wheat is about enough food for one person for one day. And then it says here three quarters of barley. Now, barley is a cheaper type of food than wheat. And so three quarters of barley for Daenerys. So about the same price, three quarters, one quart makes sense. Barley is cheaper. Three quarters of barley is barely enough for one family for one day. One family for one day. So what we get here, what we see here is a famine happening. It's people are struggling to get by. They're barely surviving day by day. They're working just to survive that day. And, and so we see here that the famine is happening. But yet the family, the family itself does have has a certain limit. Right? It says here at the end of verse 6, it says, do not harm the oil and wine. Oil and wine here are expensive. And perhaps they're not touched because they're too expensive to be touched. Maybe perhaps people are poor and yet the rich, they're, they're getting by. Kind of, right? They're just these, when inflation is still happening, so they're still have to pay a lot, but they still have their oil and wine. And so that maybe that remains. Maybe, maybe this is talking about a limitation to this famine. Maybe the oil, the olive trees and the wineries weren't touched by this famine. Whatever the case is, we see here that there's a limitation to this famine. But what we get here is that there is indeed a worldwide famine around the world, around the earth. And that could be a result of the global war that we saw before, because we know what happens during wartime is indeed a shortage of food. Right? There, there's, there's economic suffering during wartime. Right? People are struggling during that time. We, we experience that in America every time we go to war. Right? The, a lot of money being funneled through to the, to the army, to the armed forces, not enough money domestically. People are gone. Laborers are gone fighting. It's hard to raise food. It's hard to raise crops. hard to tend the farms. And therefore, it becomes more difficult. And, and we see stuff like this happen, right? There's the reason why between World War I and II is the Great Depression. There's a reason behind all that. And so we understand how this works. Whenever there's great war, usually that's followed by economic hard times and struggles. And we see if, and we can see something like a famine happening. So again, we see a progression of how these Judgments lay on top of one another. And this finally leads to fourth writer. And we see here a colossal death. A pale or green horse appears. And this writer was given authority. Given authority over a fourth of the earth. And it says here that this writer's name is death. This writer's name is death, and fall and Hades fallen. Hades here, Hades doesn't directly translate to hell. There's a different word in Greek for hell. Hades speaks of the realm of the dead, the sphere of the dead. And so wherever death goes, this is followed by its sphere, its realm of death. It leaves dead behind him. And it says here that this judgment, authority was given to him over 40 to kill, to kill 
with sword and with famine, with pestilence and with wild beasts. We get here a quarter of the world killed. I mean, to, to put that in perspective, today's population around the globe is around what, 7 billion or so? That's about 1.7 billion people dying around the world. And this is a deadly judgment that's happening upon the world here. Now we see here that this last writer, fourth writer, kind of summarizes the, the first, the, all the judgments that's been happening, right? Talking about the sword, talking about famine, talking about pestilence, which is uh, in the Greek, that, that's actually the same word for death. Pestilence, death, it's, it, and we can translate it to something like a plague, because a plague, if you don't really know what's going on, you just see people dying before you until you figure out medically what's going on with them, right? So it can look like death. So, so we, and then it says here by wild beasts of the earth, and that's kind of thrown in there, not really part of the seals, but we can also understand this as a progression, right? When, when a war happens and then famine happens, human power grows weak, Animals may also suffer from the famine. They get hungry, and wild beasts start attacking humans. That can happen. Or one commentator says these wild beasts may even refer to rats. And you know how rats carry like black plague uh, back then and brings death everywhere. In any case, it could be it, you can interpret it however you want. What we know is the wild beasts are also killing humans. So this year we see how all this happens and it's it's crazy it's crazy how all this is happening now we again we get glimpses of this throughout history even in our world today we get glimpses of this right when, when world war ii happened a lot of churches were probably thinking is this the end times warfare economic hardships we get, we, we see things like uh, a nuclear bomb happening, the biological fallout that may happen from that. Right? There's, there's all these different things that can point to these, point to the end times, but we know now, you know, going about 60 years after that time period, 60, 70 years, we, we know that that wasn't the end times, but yet we see how the, how the end times unfold. We see glimpses of that even today, which is why some people will say, Perhaps these seals are talking about what's happening presently during this church age. So I can't fault them for that. Right? I, I'm not saying they're wrong. Maybe it could be. Maybe I'm interpreting this wrong. I, I, what I think, what I think, what we see today, when, right, when we see violence going on in the world today, when we see a food shortage happening in third world nations, when we see something like COVID happening, what I think these are are reminders from God. That there will be a future greater judgment. And so, knowing all this, knowing all this, reading through all this, what does that, how does that help us now? The question comes back down to application. How does that help us as Christians live our life knowing that this, this is God's judgment against the world? 
What is the church's reaction to all this? Turn me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, this is what we call the all of the sermon, uh, the Mount of Olives sermons. Um, there's different names, all of it discourse, I believe is another name for this. Um, this is Jesus talking about the end times. Matthew chapter 24. Uh, I believe it goes all the way to the end of chapter 25. And so we, we get it, we get to see Jesus, how he talks about the end times. Now, looking at here, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus tells us. To not to be surprised by any of these judgments to come. He tells the disciples, when you see these things, don't be surprised. Let's read here, starting in verse 3. Jesus, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? Talking about the end times. And what, and what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, Antichrist, right? Verse 6, and you will hear of wars, great war, violence, and rumors of war. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nations will rise against nations, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Well, and so what we see here is that all this, all this, it says he's causing the beginning of the birth pains. And so the way I interpret the seals, the way I see the seals, is the beginning of birth pains. This is the beginning of labor, of introducing the great tribulation, and all of this should not take us by surprise. We are not to be alarmed that all of this will take place. And when they do happen, let us remember that the end is not yet come. This is just the beginning. This means we should not fall asleep. This means we should be on constant alert. This means that we should be constantly be looking, or looking and preparing ourselves for this tribulation period. You see, suffering, suffering is not excluded from the Christian life. In fact, it is expected. We expect suffering to happen. We expect tribulation to happen. We don't get caught by surprise when evil in this world happens, when we see destruction. So what do we do? Let's read on. Verse 9, Matthew 24, verse 9 says, Then they, the world, will deliver you believers up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. We will see next week the seal number five is about martyrs. As so we see again a similar progression here. Verse 10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. The sad, sad statement. But, verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. What are we to do as a church? We're to endure. We're to endure through suffering. And as we endure through suffering, as we endure through these tribulations, and as people are struggling their hardships, right? when famine happens, when violence happens, when people are dealing with stuff, who are they going to blame? They're most likely going to point at the church, and they are going to persecute the church. Are we able to stand for Christ? Are you able to stand for Christ and proclaim him before the world? We will say to all, all those people who may be persecuting us, tell them that Jesus still loves them. Yes, there is hardship going on. Yes, this world is in suffering, is groaning, groaning deeply. All this is happening so that they can come to know the Lord God Almighty. Know his son, Jesus Christ. Can we proclaim that in the midst of moments? Can we endure through the suffering and show them the hope that we have in Christ alone? So we're called here to endure. Why should we endure? Why should we endure through these things? Why do why why these judgments? Right? Why do we when we look upon these judgments, we, we can think, man, these things are happening. Why is God doing this? Why must we go through this? I just want to go into heaven. I just want to be free from all this. Why must we be endured? This comes back down to going back to the context of Revelation chapter six. This comes back down to understanding the purpose of the horseman. Now I believe the horseman appears in scripture before. Turn me to Zechariah. Zechariah. It's in the Old Testament, second to last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah, turn me first to chapter one. You see here that the four horses appears in Zechariah, and they tell us, they remind us what God is doing in this world, what God is really trying to accomplish here. In Zechariah chapter 1, starting in verse 7, here is a vision given to Zechariah. Verse 7, Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7 says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idol, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. And he was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. So we see again four horses, four colored balls. We see here red. I mean, they're not exact same colors, but we see similarities going on here, right? Verse 9. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked to me, who talked with me, said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Now this is interesting. 
This is interesting because Zechariah here sees this vision of these horsemen. They patrol the earth under the command of God, and they report back to God, the word remains at rest. But look here at how the angels respond to this. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? This verse 12 gives an interesting response. It shows us that while the earth may seem to be at peace, God's people remains in captivity. Is that true peace? No, we see here a sense of faulty peace going on around the world. Yes, this is during the time of the when Babylonian Empire was rising, they're they're just empire, the biggest empire around the globe. They're the mightiest power around. And so they reigned. Wherever they reigned, sure, they may have ushered in their kingdom rule. And it seems like the, the land's at rest because no one can challenge their power. But Jerusalem remains in captivity. God's people remains in captivity, meaning God does not reign. His enemies remains at large. So what does God do? He acts. He brings judgment upon this world. And that's what we that's what happens in the next few visions. But I now want us to turn to Zechariah chapter 6. And we see these four horses come back. Zechariah chapter 6. Starting in verse 1. Here says, again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel said to me, answered and said to me, these are these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chair with black horses goes towards the north country, the white goes after them, and the dappled ones goes towards the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. Again, they were patrolling the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. And so they patrol the earth. We see here now the horses are now pulling chariots. They're now pulling chariots, meaning these horses are now on patrol, but they're patrolling with war at hand. They're bringing judgment upon where they're going now. These chairs back then weren't just these fancy chairs. It's not Cinderella. This is chariots of war. And so these four horses that are now sent by God in judgment namely against Babylon. And that's what the north country here is talking about. right? It says here in verse 6, the chair of the black horse goes towards the north country, the white ones go after them. So the north country here speaks about Babylon because Babylon, the only way to infiltrate Israel was through the north. So Babylon here is being attacked. And this year, Remember, remember, Babylon was the greatest empire during this time. 
If you defeat empire, if you defeat Babylon, then you will win over this world. You become the mightiest power. Note what God does here. Verse 8. Thank Christ to me. Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Meaning, God brought rest to Babylon. He conquered it. He ushered in peace. And hence, by bringing peace to Babylon, he brings peace to the whole world. This here demonstrates the victory God has over the world. You see, what's happening here is that the imagery of the four horsemen given here to Zechariah is meant to bring judgment and destruction to the world, but in the eyes of believers, in the eyes of of those of Israel during this time, it was meant to bring hope and joy. Hope that this is indeed the beginning of the end and joy, joy that they will be victorious in the Lord afterwards. And in the same way, when we read Revelation and we see the four horses come out from the first four seals, we also rejoice with hope. Hope that this is the beginning of the end and joy that Christ and his saints will emerge victoriously in the end. This is just the start of it. And this informs everything of how we ought to live today. Because when we see this perspective, when we see that judgment from God upon this world, destruction, violence, plagues, everywhere, famine, all this tells us that the trials we face, the hardships that we have, all that we have to endure through, it tells us, it prepares us that this is just the beginning and we at the end will reign victoriously. This is the final battle. This is the end game. And all that we face today in our lives, whatever hardships you may be going through, whatever trials you may have, what, whatever it is that you face now that's just disrupting your peace at heart. We're just preparing you. All the stuff that's going to be happening in our world today is preparing us. It's preparing our hearts, preparing us to, to look to Christ, to remind us that this world does not, does not offer us true peace. This world does not give us true comfort, but we are to look forward to Christ who brings us true rest. That means when we look upon this world and we, when we can read the news, we can hear our friends, we can talk to our professors, we can take an outlook at the economy and all that, we can think we might be going over our heads of all this. And we see, when we look at this world, we easily get emotionally troubled, right? But we are to remember that we should not get dismayed when we see a war break out. We should not be dismayed when we see violence happen. We should not be dismayed when we, when we anticipate a depression happening in our economy. We should not be dismayed when a pandemic shuts everything down. We should not be dismayed when a natural disaster hits us hard and undermines all that we built. We should not be dismayed when we hear about violence, when we hear about stuff like school shootings or bombings. And yes, we do mourn over these things. They do hurt. These sufferings are indeed real. But we also endure in our mourning. And we remember. We remember 
there is indeed hope. Not found in man, but found in God alone. You see, all these things, they're a wake-up call. They're a wake-up call to remind us, to say, to urge us into action, to remind us that our faith matters now. And we're going to have faith in God. We're reminded that there is a God that we serve, and he has a plan, and his plan includes all these different destruction and judgment, but this is just beginning the end. In the end, we will reign victorious, and we are reminded to hold on to that message, to hold on to the gospel, to hold on to Christ, but we are also reminded that this is a message that we are to proclaim so that all people can hear this, all people can hear about Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, the Jesus Christ who secured our place in eternity, the Jesus Christ who promised us victory over sin and death. We should proclaim this message for all to hear. The trials and tribulations we face today reminds us of this. The four horsemen reminds us of this, that there is indeed great hope, not in this world, this world can be destroyed by God in an instant. There is hope that we God. And so the big idea, the big idea that we see here tonight is that the coming tribulation that we read about in Revelation ignites believers to look to Christ in the midst of our suffering now, knowing that victory awaits for us in the end. Let us hold on to this truth. Let's remember this, that there is indeed hope, that we shouldn't be afraid when we see judgment happen. We shouldn't be afraid when we see war breaking out. We shouldn't be afraid of death itself. We should continue to cling to Christ, who is our honor, who is sufficient for all things, and in him we can find rest and peace. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you God for your word we thank you God that you have given us your word which we can study which we can read and yes your word contains some really difficult truths truths about war truths about destruction truths about death but Lord we must hear these things because this is reality we hear about these things all the time but let us remember that they are all under your control. They all have a purpose in the end, either to bring people to Christ or to remind us to hold on to Christ. So let us do that. Let us look upon all the, the destruction that may be going on around this world. Let us look upon these things with clear eyes. And let us continue to look to you, to hold on to you, to know Christ and his, his love, Know Christ and his crucifixion. Know the cross and the saving work. So, Lord, thank you for giving us this grace. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for being our God. And Lord, may we then endure to the end. May, may you see us as faithful. So be with us now as we worship you. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen.